Stay tuned for Wild Oak Living coming up next. Mendocino County and beyond, you are tuned to Wild Oak Living, the program about living sustainably and building community in Mendocino and be- Mendocino County and beyond, many areas beyond. I understand that some of you listen to us on the web from way far away places around the globe, which is really wonderful. Uh, this program, Wild Oak Living, comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. And it, like I said, it's about sustainable living and building community. If you have any suggestions or feedback to this program, you can get in touch with me. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and you can email me by sending an email to contact at wildoak.org. That's contact at wildoak.org. I'd like to let you know before we get into the program and talk with our guests today, uh, support that support for KZYX comes from our members and Mendocino Transit Authority. The latest research, research shows that public transit can be used safely during the pandemic. Every day, Mendocino Transit Authority cleans and sanitizes buses following CDC guidelines and requiring face coverings. Schedules can be found at mendocinotransit.org or by calling 1-800-696-4MTA. You're counting on transit and we're counting on you because we're all in this together. And also support for KZYX comes from our members and IB Accounting and Payroll Services in Willits, specializing in bookkeeping and payroll services for local agriculture businesses and more, serving all of Mendocino County. More information at ivaccounting.com or 489-5486. Well, welcome again to Wild Oak Living. Today, I have two fascinating topics with two fascinating guests that I would like to introduce to you. During the first half hour, I'm going to be talking to Jean Ruth Schrodel, who is the Thornton Bradshaw Professor of Public Policy at Claremont Graduate University. And she has written a fascinating book about voting in Indian country. And this has, has always been an important topic, but it turns out to be an even more important topic based on the results of the latest election. And we're going to, we're going to be talking about that in a moment. So we're going to be talking about Jean's book, Voting in Indian Country, The View from the Trenches. And then in the second half hour today, I'm going to be talking about Rosemary Day, who is the CEO of Day Health Strategies. And uh, she uh, was involved in Massachusetts with the health insurance model that formed sort of the model for the Affordable Care Act. And we're going to be talking about her book, Marching Towards Coverage, How Women Can Lead the Fight for Universal Health Care. Um, so now, first of all, welcome, Jean Schrodel, on, on to Wild Oak Living. We've been planning to do this interview for a long time. We actually planned to do it before the election, but sometimes, sometimes life is what happens while you make plans. And uh, so, I just would like to first of all welcome you to Wild Oak Living, and thanks for joining us. And ask you just maybe spend a little bit of time 
talking to us about what connected you with this topic about voting in Indian country and then got you to write a book about it. I understand that was a kind of a long process, right? Thank you. And thank you so much for having me today. It's a real pleasure. And yes, um, this is a strange kind of journey. I think of this as a journey because I'm a political scientist and I specialize in American politics And I'll be honest, I had not given much thought to issues affecting Native Americans. I would be lying if I said anything other than that. I did traditional American politics. And then a little over 10 years ago, I had a former student come to me and say, why aren't you paying any attention to the incredibly, incredibly bad treatment of Native Americans in terms of voting, this was during the period where we were first starting to hear about voter suppression efforts directed towards African Americans. And this student of mine was actually from one of the California tribes from the San Manuel. His name was Darren Marquez. And I'll be honest, like most non-Native people, I had not given much thought to the conditions and things affecting them. And so I thought, well, okay, I can write a little article, just just some little piece. Well, that little piece took five years. Um, and it's, I, I, all I can say is it is so understudied, lack of understanding. It's an area where all of the same kinds of things that are used to um, dilute, suppress, deny the vote with African Americans are also applied to Native Americans and then a series of additional twists, I guess you could call it, unique aspects that make it even worse. Um, so, for example, there's been a lot of research on the closing of polling places, particularly in urban areas such as Atlanta, Georgia. Um, a serious problem. And the research shows that if you close a polling place and people have to walk a quarter of a mile or go a quarter of a mile further, that their voting turnout decreases. Important issue. But when we're talking about Indian country, the distances are so much worse. For example, Duck Valley, a reservation that is in northern Nevada, right on the Idaho border. In fact, it cuts over into Idaho. The people who are in Nevada on that reservation, if they want to vote in person, they have to travel all the way to Elko, which is just under 200 miles round trip. So there's no quarter mile. We're talking enormous distances. And one of the other... Time and gas. And money? Yes, all of that. Um, And so then people will say to me, well, I recognize that's a problem, but all they have to do is vote by mail. That's an obvious, immediate response of people. I understand that. But the reality is that most reservations do not have home mail delivery. I mean, me, six days out of the week, I take two steps out my front door and I get my mail. 
But I drive 45 minutes to get my mail. Okay, you understand. So I can relate. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Got it. So lack of ma- residential mail service, but it even goes further. So maybe this one, Johanna, I, I want to see if this applies to you too, okay? Hold okay. On. on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona, there is one section that is 871 square miles that does not have a single post office. Wow. That doesn't affect any, yeah, no other population has the same degree of barriers. There's this additional twist, if you will, um, that makes it really, really challenging. But the other piece that kicks in, which I think I was, you and I were both hinting about at the beginning, is a lack of awareness. And that comes because so many of the places are isolated, isolated in rural areas, way away from the media centers. So it's a relatively small population, about 2% in the U.S., And the most egregious abuses occur way distant from media centers and attention. So they go on and on and on. Um, Let me give you one, one example. Okay. You know, COVID. We're in the midst of COVID. So we're talking about voting by mail and other things that protecting oneself. I imagine that you and other listeners have seen um, the governor of South Dakota, Christy Noem. She's all over the media supporting Trump. No masks. South Dakota has shut nothing down because of COVID. Except one place, Jackson County, which if you if people are interested, I devote an entire chapter in my book to Jackson County, South Dakota. Jackson County, the upper half is white, off-reservation. The lower half, the southern half, is the eastern portion of the Pine Ridge Reservation. Jackson County reached a settlement in a voting rights case a few years ago, which forced them to open an early voting site on the reservation. Again, no mail so that people could access. There was off-reservation early voting. They gave, they gave up in this court case and settled um, and agreed to that. But because of COVID, Jackson County said, we are closing down that voting site. The only place in South Dakota that did something for COVID, which of course kept the Indians from voting. I've looked at data from this past election. Um, Not deep dive yet, because it's early days. But every place I've looked at, turnout in Native American precincts went up. And this was a high intensity election. The one exception is Jackson County. No change, no change. Difficult for people to vote by mail and lack of access. 
I want to I want to share with our listeners that you know a little bit about your book because I think they can also sort of guide our conversation today. You start out by talking about the whole question of citizenship, and I want to talk to you about that because that I think is something a lot of people don't know, and it's very confusing to people. And then and then you talk a little bit about what you know your second section of the promise of the ballot box, how the voting what what difference the voting right uh, rights act of 1965 made to people in Indian country. Uh, and then you talk about, um, then you share um, some perspectives from people that you've, that you've interviewed about, about this whole topic. So for example, uh, a lawyer and, and who's active in the native voting rights um, area and uh, some grassroots uh, voting rights uh, activists. Um, so the whole you you take a look at at this topic from very from many different angles, but you start out as I said by this this with this discussion about about citizenship. I'm wondering if you could spend a little bit of time talking about that because I think that is a, a sort of a. I was very surprised when I read this information. I I you know I kind of realized that Native Americans might might have been in a similar position to. African Americans in terms of access to the ballot box and 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 rights to vote, but I didn't realize that citizenship somehow played into this whole question as well. Great question, thank you, Johanna. Um, even though most of us who are not native, most people don't think of it in these terms, we have dual citizenship. You may not have known that, Johanna, but you have dual citizenship. And dual citizenship in the sense that in the United States, people are citizens, legally, citizens of the United States, of the country, but also citizens of the state that they have their domicile in. And each level of citizenship is associated with different rights. And this matters because in the 19th century, use that distinction, case minor v, that distinction to say the right to vote is a function of state citizenship, not national citizenship, so women could not vote. So understand, this is not just some abstract, obtuse um, issue, the distinction between different levels of citizenship. So most of us have dual citizenship, whether we know it or not. But individuals who also belong to one of the 574 federally recognized tribes have a third level of citizenship, that of their native nation. It doesn't take anything away from being U.S. citizens or citizens of the state of California or Nevada or wherever, but it's just a third level of citizenship that accords them specific rights that are derived, um, that go back to the existence of these native nations that preceded the arrival of Europeans and are enshrined in, in treaties with the United States government. So that whole question of citizenship becomes tied up with voting. And interestingly, even after the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case called Elk v. Wilkins, said that Native Americans, American Indians, born in the United States, were not U.S. citizens. 
that citizenship was not available to them. So native citizenship, there were some individual agreements that were made with different tribes in exchange for giving up land that allowed citizenship. But citizenship did not become universal for American Indians, Alaska Natives until 1924 with the passage Congress passed a law, the Indian Citizenship Act. And it was a response to the incredible valor of native soldiers during World War I. And there was a second uprise in awareness after the Second World War, which, but the ICA did not come with the right to vote. It was not mentioned in the law. And that went back to the states. Remember that two levels of citizenship. And the states continued to have laws that statutorily, by law, excluded Native Americans from voting. Even after the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, many states with large Native populations continued in these practices. In fact, there was a view that the Voting Rights Act did not apply to them. I mean, crazy that the VRA only applied to African Americans was the argument. That did not really change with respect to the indigenous peoples of this country until 1975. The U.S. Civil Rights Commission, after the passage of the VRA, had a mandate to, as they were coming on the 10-year anniversary, to look at the impact of the act. Now they, and they did a big study, and they mostly looked at the South, but they also discovered there were some egregious abuses, and they focused on Arizona and South Dakota, both of which a couple things that were just mind-bogglingly discriminatory. In South Dakota, they labeled counties that had reservations as unorganized, and they had all county business handled by adjacent white counties, and the people could not vote on anything that affected them. So they were denied, absolute denial of the vote. Arizona, um, Arizona, oh Lord, Arizona had one case where you had a Native American man, a Navajo, who ran for the county commission, county commission seat. He got three times the vote of his white opponents, and they refused to allow him to be seated on the grounds that because he was Native, he wasn't actually a citizen of that county. So that whole citizenship completely tied in with the franchise and representation in ways that are quite distinct from what happened with other minority populations in this country. So I think that may, have I answered that piece? No. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's such, such surprising information. Yeah. I, I don't know if you heard yesterday, uh, if you listened to Amy Goodman's Democracy Now! yesterday, but she had some guests on, uh, some Native American guests who were very active in their recent election in terms of turning out the Native American vote. 
And and from I wasn't able to listen to the whole thing, but from what I took away from that is um, that that the Native American vote may well have made the difference in Arizona. Uh, Absolutely. In, in terms of putting Biden over over you know over the limit in in several counties in Arizona, I wonder if you can elaborate on that. Before you do, let me just remind our listeners that you're listening to Wild Oak Living on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, and my guest right now is Jean Reith Schrodel, who is the Thornton Bradshaw Professor of Public Policy at Claremont Graduate University, and we are talking about her new book, Voting in Indian Country: The View from the Trenches. Okay, go ahead. Wow, yes. Um, tremendous activism. And I'll be honest, one of the things that I have in the book is a number of oral histories of people who've been engaged. So I would hope that individuals be interested in learning what it feels like on the ground for the people who are doing it, the lawyers, the activists, the plaintiffs in the court cases. But yes, I mean, tremendous energy on the part of Native grassroots groups and lawyers in this recent election. So Arizona, I was mentioning earlier about the part where there was 871 square miles without a post office. So had to do extraordinary efforts to push those counties to provide extra polling sites, to provide drop boxes so people could actually put ballots in and incredible efforts. So in Arizona, about 6% of the voting of registered voters are Native American. And the county that gave the highest level of support to Joe Biden was actually a county, it's called Apache County, even though it's mostly Navajo, little Apache, some Hopi, but mostly Navajo, the highest level of support. But that wasn't the only place where the Native vote was very important. It was also important in Minnesota and, again, in Nevada. So it's a relatively small percent of the total U.S. population. But in a number of states, particularly battleground states, it can be crucial. I mean, in the past, a number of elected officials attribute their election to the Native American vote. John Tester in Montana, he's now won three times, and each time it was because of the strong support from Native American voters. Heidi Hapkamp, when she was uh, in North Dakota, the same thing in Minnesota. Um, oh, shoot, I can't think of his name right now. The former Alt Franken um, said they were his uh, secret weapon. So it's a relatively small population across but within individual states very important about almost nine percent in south dakota eight um, percent in montana 16 percent in alaska um, but alaska if you think about it the issues for access to the ballot box there are unbelievable um, and, for example, in the primary, there was one Alaska Native village that never even got any ballots. They were ignored. They were forgotten. Um, so really interesting issues. As part of this book, I went to Alaska 
along with the Dakotas and Nevada, um, a number of places where I could learn about the distinct issues that were affecting those populations. And the incredible diversity um, was just mind-boggling. So, yeah, very, very important. Uh, in the in the uh, ten minutes or so we have left, um, I I would I would love to look to look forward in terms of what you see the challenges are, how people can you know learn more, how people can engage in terms of resolving the challenges that many challenges that that you described and that remain in terms of um, you know getting making it more possible for Native Americans to participate in election processes both local, state, and nationwide? Wow, big question. Okay. Yes. At the state level, I'm going to talk California for just one moment. Okay. okay. Um, James Ramos, who is in the state legislature, he is the first Native American to serve in the California state. He has put in a bill to create a commission to study barriers in the state of California. So I would encourage people to support that effort. Um, I know that a couple years ago, the Native American Voting Rights Coalition, which I am part of, we did hearings across the United States, including two in California. And at those hearings, Native people came and they talked about some of the barriers in California but they hadn't really, there hasn't been a deep dive um, examination of the issues. Again, travel distance being one of them that came out pretty strongly in the hearings with respect to California. So I would support that bill, which would allow that kind of a deep look working with Native communities in the state. Nationwide, I would encourage people to support um, write your legislators, whatever you do, three bills that would make a significant difference. Okay, One is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Um, that would uh, change the criteria, the parts that the Supreme Court ruled were unconstitutional in the Shelby decision um, that involved... Um, political jurisdictions that had egregious histories of discrimination. So it would change some of the criteria to solve the issues that were raised by the Supreme Court. It should have been addressed a long time ago, but with Congress divided, it got pushed to the side. John Lewis, Voting Rights Advancement Act. But with respect to the Native American communities in particular, there's something, a bill that's been introduced, and it'll probably be reintroduced in both the House and the Senate. That is the Native American Voting Rights Act. This would deal with, this, with some of the very specific issues that I've been raising that are unique to this community. It would require state and county election officials to work with the tribes, for example, to ensure that there were early voting sites or voting sites on reservations, to deal with some of the travel distance, to work with them to establish, for example, drop boxes, or to allow for 
the collections for tribes to collect mail-in ballots from people. So addressing the particular um, issues that are unique to, to Indian country that are distinct and that are not being addressed by the other civil rights legislation. So I think that would be really important. Third thing is slightly different. Um, those two and the one in California directly address voting. There's a third national bill that I think would be extremely important. This is called the Remove the Stain Act. And it's been introduced, I think, in the Senate um, in the past by Elizabeth Warren, in the House by Deb Holland. Um, and what this bill would do, it's a kind of, it deals with racial reckoning. Um, we're in a time of rethinking, re readdressing the many, many painful history and the continuing effects of some of historical practices. This act would remove the medals of honor. There were 20 medals of honor that were given um, for the wounded knee to 7th Cavalry men who participated in the Wounded Knee Massacre. Um, there are many other massacres, including in California, Blood Island, um, and other situations. This is probably the highest profile one, and it was the only one that gave Congressional Medals of Honor. And it involved a non-belligerent, non-fighting non group of Sioux who were surrounded by 7th Cavalry. They had a misunderstanding with a deaf elderly man and began shooting. And they had what were called Hotchkiss guns, which were an early version of machine gun. And they massacred, uh, the numbers vary, most say at least 300 people were killed. There was no fighting back. It was a massacre. And the Medal of Honor is supposedly given for honor and valor. And when you speak with Native people, this, um, this in many ways summarizes the lack of respect, the lack of racial, um, racial reckoning. Um, we're going into Thanksgiving. Um, yeah. When you sit down with your turkey, you know, if you're not a vegan or a vegetarian, um, yeah, consider, consider, consider this, the Remove the Stain Act as something, um, as part of reconciliation and understanding moving forward. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned all of those, because I have to say, even though I tried to stay aware and active, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of those. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that you came on to the program to talk not about the top, only about the topic in general, but about the, uh, about these specific initiatives that could very well, hopefully would make a difference. Um, 
Yeah. Is, is there is there some some parting information that you'd like to leave with us, like a website about your book, Jim uh, Sherlock? And again, the book is Voting in Indian Country, and uh, and my author and guest today is Sherlock, and uh, she is. Um, uh, do you have a website where people can get in touch with you, or how would get people get in touch with you to learn more about your topic and about your book? Well, if someone wanted to reach me, I'm reachable by email, gene.schrodale at cgu.edu. The university has a website. I don't have a personal one. I'm, I'm getting old. I don't do all that stuff. But <laughs> the, book, the book is available from either Amazon or the University of Pennsylvania Press. And I'll be honest, I hope people will... I hope people will buy it and read it. I think you'll find it to be a good read. Um, but I also... Again, yeah, go ahead. I also, I think it's important. I mean, I know that sounds slightly arrogant to say I've done something important, but I I think it is. I think it is. Is there also a website for the, in, uh, the, the Voting Rights Coalition that you talked about earlier? The Native American Voting Rights Coalition, um, it can, you can contact NAVRC um, through the Native American Rights Fund. They have material on that. Another place that's really good to check out grassroots activism is Four Directions, um, which has a website, and they are out of Mission, South Dakota. So they've done a lot of the grassroots work. Um, so those are two really good, good sources. Um, and the for, website where you can look for the book is www.penpress.org, P-E-N-Press.org. That's the University of Pennsylvania Press, where you can get a copy of the book of my guest, Jean Schrodel, and her last name is spelled S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-L, and the name of the book is Voting in Indian Country. Thank you so much, Jean, for this enlightened conversation, enlightened, enlightening conversation, enlightened, hopefully, um, and all, all the best with, with uh, whatever your future plans and wherever your future road will take you. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. You are listening to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and Wild Oak Living comes to you every other Thursday from... Uh, Nine, <laughs> I was kind of distracted momentarily from 9 until 10 a.m. Uh, and uh, it's all about living sustainably and building community in Mendocino County and beyond. Uh, and we are now going to join our second guest who's already with us on Zoom. Uh, you, I don't know if I've talked about this, but of course, you know, in this, in this age of the pandemic, we are doing our interviews via Zoom now, and it's which is really wonderful for me because. When I do interviews by phone, I can't see my guests. And now with Zoom, I can actually see my guests and feel like I'm in sort of in a studio with you. Um, so <laughs> I would like to now welcome Rosemary Day, who is the CEO of Day Health Strategies. And she wrote a book called Marching Towards Co Toward Coverage, How Women Can Lead the Fight for Universal Healthcare. Welcome to Wild Earth Living, Rosemary. Thank you. So nice to be here. That's great. Yes, um, we we as as I just was 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 telling Jean, we plan to do this interview for a while, um, but the topic of healthcare is always a topical topic, and so 
you know, I'm 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 glad we're finally we finally have an opportunity to get together. Um, and I'd like to start out by asking you the the question that I ask uh, all the people who come on my program who to talk about you know their, a book that they've written about the topic they're passionate about. How did how do and I know healthcare is your profession, so that there's an obvious link there. But um, what motivated you to write a book about uh, you know how how women can uh, lead the fight for healthcare? What what's what how what was the road to that? Um, so it, it was a it was a confluence of events, um, starting with the election of Donald Trump in 2016, um, and I <laughs> had been um, you know on the ground floor of implementing the Affordable Care Act um, since its inception, and had actually worked on the prototype for the ACA in Massachusetts, and we had launched it successfully in a bipartisan fashion. Um, and then I, you know, jumped on to the opportunity to help other um, other entities, states and insurers and what have you, implement the Affordable Care Act. And it was a rocky road, but I truly saw it as an answer for our country. And then we have Donald Trump saying on day one, he's going to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And he had Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell right there, all the Republican leadership pretty much saying the same thing. So I thought, oh, my gosh, we have got to save this somehow. And and knowing that we had done it in a bipartisan way in Massachusetts, I thought people don't understand this well enough. So that that was for, you know, I'm thinking about that in my mind, like we've got to do something. And then in early 2017, the day after the inauguration, the Women's March in Washington, D.C., and really everywhere. But I was fortunate enough to go to the march in D.C. with my oldest daughter, my 80-year-old mother, and friends, and my sister-in-law. And it was the most amazing thing, so incredibly powerful and peaceful. Um, and and all of that led to uh, people there saying, okay, feeling this collective power, what do we do with this? What do we do next? And I wanted to answer the question about um, healthcare, and I wanted to preserve the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so I started to think about what more I could do. I had to put that on hold because I then was diagnosed with breast cancer. So to go through that uh, process in, in 2017. 2017 was a was a tough year, I have to say, though um, it, it pales in comparison to 2020. So, but 20, all of those things came together. And I thought, if I get through this breast cancer thing, I have more of a story to tell because I was fortunate to be insured. But I talked to my you know, doctors about what would happen if I hadn't been. And all, so really the culmination of that perfect storm of the desire of the Republicans to repeal the Affordable Care Act, feeling the power of women coming together in that women's march and leading that change. And then um, having my personal experience, which, um, you know, just really makes you say, was there a reason for this? You know, is there something more I could do with this? And I really wanted to um, get some, you know, get some education out there about, about started with the ACA, but um, I decided that wasn't going to be an interesting enough book. And so I decided to aim higher and to say, if I could dream my world for 2020, <laughs> where would I want, where would I want to take people? And I would want to take people to where other countries have gotten, which is universal healthcare, truly universal healthcare. So I decided to make the book about that and to send forth a positive message um, that could be led by women. Mm 
and why women? Well, um, so as I note in the book, women make 80% of the healthcare decisions at the family level. Um, in fact, we've been dubbed the chief medical officer of our homes. Um, however, we don't have that level of power in this country. Um, we are still um, not even 25% of Congress, and um, we have never won the presidency, though we certainly just made a big gain um, with our vice president-elect. Um, but still, women have um, the burden um, of all of these um, health care decisions to make, and we don't have the resources to really um, address the issues at the systemic level. If you can't afford health insurance, that's not just on you. In my view, that really calls for a political a political solution. Uh, we are a wealthy country that could be helping people afford their health care in a much, much bigger fashion than we currently are doing. And so I, I felt that women have um, a huge stake in this and that I went back to what feminists in the 60s and 70s were saying, the personal is political. And I wanted to help people make that connection that these, these challenges, these burdens you have, the home front can be addressed um, if we demand that our country do better by us and that we shift our priorities. And I wrote this before the pandemic. The pandemic has only made this so much worse as women are shouldering even more caregiving, um, you know, homeschooling on and on and on, um, in addition to the threats to health care, not just from, you know, the coronavirus itself, but from people losing jobs and losing their health insurance along with those jobs. So um, I felt that women could make a powerful moral argument for this. And, and again, remembering that women's March and the collective sense of power, um, that we, we haven't fully tapped. And I wanted to encourage women to export, expect more from this country. And we're, I, I'm, I'm one of, before the end of the hour, I do want to talk in, in your book, you have a really interesting section about, um, um, you know, how, how, how to figure out what kind of activism and engagement would, would work best for individual people. You have a kind of a, a questionnaire that people can take. And I want to talk about that in a moment, but um, I want to mm -hmm. first talk about the fact that, um, well, maybe, I don't know if we actually have time to really get into it, but uh, I mean, we have hugely high healthcare costs and yet the outcomes uh, uh, so much, two or three times more than, than other countries that have universal health care, and yet the outcomes and what we get for our money is uh, is is often less than you know than what we pay for. So I'm just wondering why if you want to talk a bit about that and how um, the ACA addresses some of the things, but how the ACA in itself is not the whole solution. Right. So. So when we look at the outcomes in our country, that really is averaging things out. It, we look at um, mortality rates. We look at um, maternal mortality and infant mortality. Um, our life expectancy as a country is not as long, um, you know, as, as the uh, countries that have universal health care. Um, and we have worse infant mortality statistics um, and maternal mortality. Um, and there are many other measures, but that is because we are not doing some of the basics. So we're really good. If you, if you can afford healthcare, 
um, in this country, and you know, you're wealthy or you have a great insurance plan, you can get phenomenal health care. Um, but if you are middle income or lower income and your health care coverage is skimpy or non-existent, then you don't have access um, to that great health care. And in fact, you don't even really have access to basic basic things like preventive care, um, screenings, things like that, that would keep you healthy. And that's where the U.S. falls down because we, you know, we have incredible innovation and technology and, um, and we found cures for, uh, or treatments for many, many things. Um, but that's really available mostly to the wealthy. Um, and so, you know, when you average things out, um, we come up short because we're not addressing the basics, and that's where we need to do a whole lot better. And the Affordable Care Act for for those who have it, it you know, it provides a lot more than than people used to have. For for one thing, you know, the whole uh, the fact that pre existing conditions can no longer be used against you that is just huge. But at the same huge. time. It, at the same time, the affordable plans still call for high deductibles, call for high co-pays. So, you know, if, if you can afford the ACA because you get subsidies, you still have to face, you know, the co-pays and the deductibles and the out-of-pocket costs, um, which, you know, which can be a big hit on a, on a middle-income or lower budget. And, Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so those, you know, I argue in the book that those subsidies need to be more generous. And in fact, in Massachusetts, as I said, we had the prototype for the ACA, um, the, the subsidies in Massachusetts are more generous and the deductibles are not as high. I mean, it's not free health care for everyone. I do believe there should be a sliding scale um, of some sort, but, uh, but it needs to be more generous. And so um, the ACA did not get us all the way there. Um, but you're absolutely right. It did um, a huge service to um, all Americans, and that's over 100 million of us, myself included, who have pre-existing conditions. We cannot be denied health care, um, and we also can't be charged more for it if we are buying our health care on our own and we don't have the benefit of an employer-sponsored plan. And then you just gave me the keyword for the next question, which is, uh, you know, there was this big discussion when the ACA first came about, well, so many people have good insurance with their, with their employer and we're happy with their insurance program. And, uh, you know, and, and there was this big discussion, this polarizing discussion about, you know, should, should it be an employer sponsored thing or should it be, uh, like a, a government sponsored thing. And yet now, you know, 40 some million people are finding, or, or maybe, I don't know, maybe not that many, but, you know, millions of people are finding out the downfall of having your health insurance connected to your employment, because when your employment goes away, your health insurance goes away. Right. Absolutely. And it's um, something that, you know, other countries don't do, um, which is tying your insurance to your job. We, we, we started that long ago. It was uh, actually during World War II that that really kind of took off as, um, as a solution. And we've just never really turned back from that. Um, but, the, you know, it increased over years and years. And now the value of that coverage is starting to erode, even for people who've hung on to it. And as you point out, many people have lost it because of the pandemic. Do you think 
do you think uh, there is a way to um, to overcome this polarization, you know, between the people who think it should all be private and the people who think it sh should all be government sponsored and public government run? You have this really great title in your book for for chapter eight: "Solutions Need to Be Political, Not Polarizing." And that's kind of a, mm -hmm. you know we've learned we've learned for those for those two things to go together: political and polarizing, in at least in the last few Wait. years. Which is so unfortunate because really I, I see healthcare as a humanitarian issue. It, it doesn't, you know, who, who gets sick, who has pre-existing conditions has nothing to do with political party. Um, we all need healthcare eventually. Um, and so um, I, I really wanted to find a way, and that's why I thought also appealing to women who um, share this burden of needing to keep their families safe and healthy, um, that they that they could come together and, and really try to uh, cross party lines on that. And again, you know, in Massachusetts, we managed to do the health reform in a bipartisan fashion. So um, I, I think that there is a middle ground. I do believe the ACA was that middle ground um, and that we could build upon its successes and uh, recover from where we've gotten, where we lost ground in the Trump era and take it further. And that would get us a, another big step closer to universal health care. I'm afraid if, if we went to a full government solution like a Medicare for all, um, that there would be too much of a backlash um, because there are not enough people in the country who would trust the government to do a good job with that. Um, you know, people are okay with the government playing the role with Medicare for the elderly, although some people actually seem to be confused and don't even think government's involved with that. So that's a different story. Um, but there's such a distrust of, of government um, amongst the population um, that that would be too pol I think too polarizing of a proposal. And so we need to um, continue to involve the private sector in um, the delivery of the solution, but we need the government protections, the government guardrails I talk about, um, like the ACA provided. As long as you have the involvement of private insurance companies, how do you keep the profit motive from dominating the whole discussion about healthcare? So um, I'm in a state where most of the insurers are nonprofits. Most of the provider systems are nonprofits. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said for the role of nonprofits in this area. Um, I don't directly, you know, in the book, take on that issue of for-profit versus nonprofit. But, yes, sitting here today, um, I would certainly be more of a fan of a nonprofit-based system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so we have we have probably about uh, six minutes left in our conversation, and I'd like to use that time to to give you a stage for, you know, what whatever it is that you feel important to talk about this topic now in terms of going forward. You know, what what is it? Where how can people engage? I want to talk. I want to encourage you to talk a little bit also about about uh, your personal activism assessment because I think that's a fascinating tool, not just for this topic but in general you know, for people trying to figure out how can I make a difference in the world. That's great. Well, thank you. Um, I think the pandemic has only made um, the topic of my book more important. And as we think about how we get to the other side of this pandemic and try to prevent 
future ones or certainly not suffer as much harm as we are from this one, a really key building block is going to be universal health care. So, um, so we need to go from where we are with this election outcome and keep pushing and keep building. So I, you know, it's not over just because uh, we have Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as, uh, you know, elected. Um, there is so much more to be done and we have to keep, keep the pressure on, um, and keep the support there. So that's, that's kind of thing one. Um, and, and in terms of, um, really appealing to people to think about their own personal involvement. Yes. I, I created a website, uh, rosemaryday.com, which is where you can find the book. And that's where you, um, I'm hoping if you buy the book or listen to the book, you'll be informed and inspired to do more. And then on the website, I give you the tools for activism. So I give you a quick quiz, which I called the assessment, and you can see where you are in the continuum of being an activist. Um, and then I give you uh, different things that you can do to step up your level of activism. And, you know, I know not everybody's going to necessarily go to a protest march or, um, or is going to run for office, but there's so many things you can do to get the healthcare cause advanced in this country. Um, telling your story, uh, signing up for further information, making phone calls, all of those things are um, vital. And the more of us who do them, the better. So um, I have all those resources uh, at rosemaryday.com. And you divide it up into, into, into four categories and, and depending on your temperament and your level of interest and time available, <laughs> you can, you can be either in, you know, you can work on, on awareness, you can work on sharing information, or you can participate in various uh, activities or activisms, or you can be a leader and, and have play a leadership role in all of this. And, you know, so yes. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that each of us would, would find a home in one of those four categories. Yes, and and I really wanted it to be a judgment-free zone. Um, I, I'm in, you know, the, all I want is for people to um, basically get a little bit out of their comfort zone and start to step up that level of activism from wherever you are at this moment. And I keep challenging myself to do more. Um, to you know, even sharing my story about breast cancer is not something. I was comfortable doing initially. Um, you know, I've had to just keep pushing myself to get out of a comfort zone and do things um, that I think will help the, the cause. And um, so I, I, I encourage people to join me in doing that. And, and what, are, uh, what are your, your next steps in terms of your engagement in this topic? Um, well, I care a lot about what happens with the Georgia Senate races, um, because the makeup of Congress is going to be very, um, definitive in terms of how much we can push forward on a healthcare agenda. Um, I, I don't, Mitch McConnell will not, um, be supporting anything that brings us closer to universal healthcare. Um, at least judging by all of his prior actions, that's not going to be something that, that he, that he um, champions, and so um, he'll block he'll block the attempts, and that will be very discouraging. So I'm very focused on the the Georgia Senate races right now. Beyond that, um, I'm continuing to give talks and um, you know raise awareness about how we can move forward. Um, hopefully, with um, with some Democratic leadership, but even without that, how we can continue to help states do more at their level, and how more and more people can share their stories 
and um, and make this something that cannot be ignored. And and what what inspires you to keep going? I think that I've, I've you know there's too much inequality in this country. Um, we've been moving in the wrong direction for a long time, and uh, you know I I see universal health care as one of the ways to try and rectify that. And that that's actually really important for our, our, the health of our democracy, not just the health of us as individuals. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't see a better way to be spending my time, frankly, um, for something this important. So, yes, it gets discouraging sometimes. But when you see people suffering in the pandemic, I, you know, I have I'm, you know, I feel, I feel the pain of that. And I, I always just feel like I have to be doing something Um and I'm not a frontline healthcare worker, um, but I can try to make sure I'm doing things so that more people have um, access to that healthcare. Can you spend 30 seconds talking about day health strategies? Your organization? Um, thank you. We, we are a company I founded 10 years ago. Um, so we are um, in the business of making good change. Um, and we started out helping implement national health reform, and now we do a lot of things to support improvements in the Medicaid program and other things to make um, healthcare more high value and accessible to consumers. Well, I really appreciate your coming on today, Rosemary Day, who is the a CEO of Day Health Strategies, and she wrote a book that we've been talking about called "Marching Toward Coverage: How Can Women." How women can lead the fight for universal health care. And, and your website again is rosemaryday.com. Is that right? Sure is. Mm -hmm. okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on and all the best for, for what you do. And hopefully we've inspired some others to, to join you in, in. Well, I uh, truly appreciate it. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. So I'm glad I could be on your show. Take care. Thank you too. You've been listening to Wild Dog Living. We're about to come to the end of the program. I'll be back in two weeks uh, with more about sustainable living and building community. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for music coming up on this station. And if you have any feedback, send an email to contact at wildoak.org. That's contact at wildoak.org. And I'd love to hear from you and, uh, and, and if you have suggestions for future topics or local organizations that that uh, you would like to fe see featured on this program or any other topic please contact me and let me know thanks this is johanna wilder and we are now going to